Um, so you can grab your Bibles, and the first place I'm going to have you open is actually not um, in Isaiah. It's actually Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Well, each year throughout the world, lots of people that I would deem crazy take part in this nutty tradition that stretches back millennia. Men of all ages, women of all ages, choose voluntarily, yes, voluntarily, to do a road race that is 26.2 miles long, called a marathon. Now you know why I think they're crazy. Now what's interesting is when you look back last year, there were over 55, or excuse me, 555,000 finishers who ran in 815 marathons across the United States and Canada. Now why on earth do so many people take part in this? And I think about it, and of course me being a history geek, I always think back, what's the point of this? Why do we do it? And the story behind it is amazing, and it actually makes me kind of want to consider for, I don't know, like two seconds, uh, the idea of running 26 miles all at once. About 200 years after the life of Isaiah, where we're at right now in Scripture, the world was still as chaotic as it is in his poetry. But there was a giant force called the, the Medo-Persian Empire that was in the midst of its largest part of its reign, and it was trying to bring all of the world under its control. And so it was going to take down a couple of city-states known as Athens and Sparta uh, in present-day Greece. And so in 490 B.C., the Persian army landed at Marathon, which is about 26 miles north of Athens, and their hope was that their army of 25,000 men would summarily destroy the Athenian army of 10,000. And the Athenians knew that they were outmatched, so they dispatched one of their warriors, an army messenger named Phidippides. Great name. Those of you that are all expecting, Phidippides, Hans, whatever your last name is. It's a good mix, Okay. The legend goes that Pheidippides ran 140 miles, yes, 140 miles over two days to Sparta, and you're thinking, there's no way this could be done. This is a legend. In 1982, three RAF, Royal Air Force officers, ran the route in under 35 hours. That's insane, okay? But the amazing part is that upon entering Sparta, you guys think you have a bad day at work when your boss turns down your project proposal. He runs in and he tells them they need help and they say, no, we're in the middle of a holy day or a holy festival. It's going to take us 10 days to dispatch. So, poor Phidippides takes his jaw off the ground and then starts running back. In the span of 10 days, he had run 280 miles and boys and girls, he did not have Nikes. Most likely ran it basically nude in bare feet or at the very least with some sandals. Rather than being disheartened, though, when he came back, the Athenian army took this as the gods telling them that they were supposed to attack, and so attack they did, and the Persians were taken off guard, and in a stunning defeat, the Persians were pushed back onto their ships, and they had to go to plan B, which was to directly attack Athens just around the coast. And so, after having run 280 miles, having fought in an epic battle, right, not a video game, a real battle, okay, they said, hey, Phidippides, we got a short run for you. 26.2 miles, we need you to run to Athens. And we need you to tell them that we were victorious and, heads up, the army is coming, so be ready. 
Now, the Athenian army knew that the Persians would sail around, and so all of the army started running themselves behind Pheidippides, and they would eventually get there and fend them off yet again. It was the start of the defeat of the Persians and the beginning of the build of the Greek Empire. But Pheidippides, he went off running the 26.2 miles back to Athens to warn them of the coming invaders and to embolden them that in the midst of this giant warfare and battle, they could be defeated, that the Persians could be defeated, and to embolden the Athenian army and say to them and proclaim to them that they had indeed been victorious at Marathon. The legend states that he broke into the court of the king He proclaimed the victory of his people, and he fell down dead because of the run. It's kind of how I feel when I get off the treadmill too, right? (laughs) So if you think you're tough by wanting to run 26.2 miles, I would say try the 306.2 first after talking to your doctor and do it within 12 days, right? But see, in 1879, there was a poet named Robert Browning, and he penned a poem describing this famous run. And in the midst of the last two stanzas, he writes this. And it's kind of hard for us to understand. It's a little bit older English, the way it's written, and it's poetry. But just bear with me. He says this. He says, Run, Pheidippides, one race more. The mead is thy due. Athens is saved, thank God. Go shout. He flung down his shield. He ran like fire once more. And the space twixt the fennel field and Athens was stubble again, a field which a fire runs through till in he broke. Rejoice, we conquer. Like wine through clay, joy in his blood bursting his heart, he died of the bliss. So to this day, when friend meets friend, the word of the salute is still rejoice. His word which brought rejoicing indeed. And it is interesting to me, this deed of heroism, whether it be truth or tale, inspires in mankind something where we build up our confidence and our courage. And we do something that most of us would probably never do unless we are a little bit crazy. And even if it's only 26.2 miles, and I do say only, it's based on this man that gave his life to proclaim the victory of a kingdom. And he yelled out with his last breath, rejoice, we conquer. Now, you guys know where I'm going with this. This immediately makes me think of the one who truly gave his life for his kingdom and in his death alone brought victory to his people. And I think it is very fitting that we as Christians understand this phrase because it is one that I think we need to pick up from Pheidippides, that friend meets friends. When friend meets friend, the greeting is rejoice, we conquer. Say it with me. Rejoice, we conquer. And I like that phrase because it's very hard for us to be apathetic about it, right? Hey, rejoice. We conquered. It's kind of like on Easter, right? The one time people kind of say, hey, let's go back to the old way of saying, uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? You do not want to be the one person on Easter that somebody says that to and you're like, yeah, yeah, he's risen indeed, right? Off you go. Rejoice, we conquer. This is the message of the Bible. This is the gospel truth. Rejoice, we conquer. The cry of victory over the nations, the cry of victory over sin and death. Rejoice, we conquer. And so we've been looking at the kingdom that Jesus brought in and in which he reigns, in which he says to us, rejoice because we have conquered. Last week we looked at the proclamation and what it means to those who are not under the rule of his kingdom. What happens to those nations or kingdoms or even individuals who refuse to have his reign in their lives 
and do not submit to him. And we've seen this idea of God at war against other principalities and powers of the kingdoms of darkness and the arrogant kingdoms of mankind time and time again. And it reminds me of where I had you turn in Ephesians 6. It reminds me of what Paul says, Ephesians 6. In verse 10, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because, he's saying, because that is our battle, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And he goes on to state what it is to stand firm in Christ. Now, this includes the demonic, but that is not the fullness of what he is speaking of. When we read the Bible, guys, we always read in context. Notice the phrases, and you can even just look at the headings before this. The heading directly of the paragraph directly before is bondservants and masters. The paragraph directly before that is children and parents. The section directly before that is wives and husbands. And the section directly before that is how we as the body of Christ, last line, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is he talking about? Authority. He's talking about the fact that we, being people in the kingdom of the king, are under authority. One of the hallmark pieces of our character as Christians is that we are people under authority. And that our highest authority is Jesus Christ. And he submits to God the Father in his reign of his kingdom. And we submit to all earthly authorities as best as we can so that we follow them as long as we're not against the authority of Jesus. And within the church, we submit to the authority of our elders. And within the home, we submit to the authority of the husband. And in none of these cases is the person in authority to abuse or overpower or harm those who are in their care because the kingdom of heaven has a different reign, a reign based on love and benevolence and servant leadership. And so this statement is not just about spiritual warfare. It's about the fact that spiritual warfare is one piece of the larger battle of what it is to be under the authority of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And this is what Paul was speaking of when he wrote Ephesus. And so we finished last week looking in depth at the beginning of this section that spans from Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 that clearly states that God has become king and he would eventually fully inaugurate that kingdom in Jesus Christ and eventually in the span of time in the future he will come in the fullness of his reign and establish his kingdom 100% on this earth. And so he gave a proclamation to the nations. And what was that proclamation? That proclamation was that his kingdom will eventually be exalted above all other authorities and that the authorities that believe they have the power now will be brought down to the pit along with the spiritual authority behind them, Satan himself, the original adversary. And so the cry of victory goes up in Isaiah. Rejoice. We conquer. Interspersed within the text today, we will see the impending events that will happen within a, a few brief uh, years as well as into the future. 
And so we have this idea that we talked about last time, the mountain peaks of prophecy, where the, the, the prophet looks into the future and he sees not only the thing coming immediately, but he sees the first coming, the inauguration of the kingdom, and eventually the full reign of the king. And so I will admit to you guys, I'll take the pressure off of you, this section of Scripture is hard to understand, okay? Uh, I get really frustrated as a pastor with people when they go around saying, all you need is the Holy Spirit, you just understand the Scripture. No, guys, if that were true, I would be saving $70,000 on a seminary education, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit does guide you, yes, absolutely, and it brings you into conviction of the words that are spoken, but there is a whole lot packed into this Scripture. So my job today is going to be to help you navigate it and try and work through it to figure out what it is that the Holy Spirit is saying to us, okay? And so we can go ahead and turn back to Isaiah, and we're going to be in Isaiah fourteen twenty-eight, And we're going to see first, you can write this down if you take notes, okay? The proclamation to Philistia, the Philistines. And here's the proclamation. This is the overall idea of the section we're going to cover right now. In the kingdom of God, you will find refuge. And you could even say only in the kingdom of God, you will find refuge. See, the the Philistines are going to come to Israel, or excuse me, to Judah, begging for refuge. And the response is going to be, in the kingdom of God, you will find refuge. Let's take a look here at what, what is going on. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. And remember, oracle is also a word for proclamation. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his rakes. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Now, to understand this proclamation and give it context, we have to first look at what was going on in the political situation at the time. Isaiah is going to jump around from time period to time period, and so a lot of people believe, including me, that uh, these are various poems that were written in prophetic uh, utterance by Isaiah throughout his time span of life, but then they were reordered either by him towards the end of his life or possibly by his disciples to speak even a greater understanding in the midst of all of them. And so let's look at the context here really quick. For you uh, history geeks, for some of you, you're going to pass out for a little while from boredom, but it's okay, all right? We'll, we'll bring you back in. This is a map of the Middle East. And up there with the arrow, uh, that is the kingdom of Assyria. And it eventually would get taken out by the kingdom of Babylon or Babylonia, directly below it. And then that would eventually get taken out by Media and Persia, which are to the east there, all right? But right now what we're concerned with is Assyria because what Assyria was doing was they were moving kind of in an arc down through what's called the Levant, which is where Israel and Syria are. And uh, they were hitting, they were hitting two places, Syria and Israel. And so what was going on here was that uh, Assyria was coming in and they were wiping out these two areas to the north. Now this is going to be important as we talk about Moab uh, and as we move further into the the other um, uh, oracles. But what was now happening is Assyria was actually starting to get wiped out and they were the ones that everybody had to worry about before 
But they were getting t- uh, put down. The serpent's root okay, was being put down. The serpent of Assyria was being destroyed. And in their place, Babylon was stepping up. And Babylon make the, made Assyria look like the JV team. Okay? So now Babylon was coming in, and they were going to attack not only Jerusalem, but they were going to move even farther south and hit the Philistines okay, in, in what we now know as the Gaza Strip. Okay? And so f- the Philistines, a much smaller group of, of city-states, came to Judah, really the only remaining power whatsoever in the area, and they said, hey, we need some help because Babylon's going to come destroy us. Can you give us refuge? So Ahaz at that time began to really worry. He was the king in power at the time. Um, And he died, and there was no one in power. And so they come with this power vacuum thinking that they can say, hey, we're sorry your king died, right, coming to give, uh, you know, um, uh, their mourning and their sadness, their condolences. And at the same time, say to Israel, why don't we team up? Why don't we become our own kingdom that can fight against this greater kingdom, all right? So what was going on was this delegation where it says there in verse 32, what will one answer the messengers of the nation? They had come to seek an alliance under the guise of providing the condolences. And we see all sorts of Exodus language in here. If you guys remember the old Bible story, right, in the Torah, the fiery serpents. Why were the fiery serpents dispatched? Uh, Those of you in the young adults group, we just went through this. They were dispatched because of the whining and groaning and mistrust of the people towards God. And even greater in the book of Numbers, where that story takes place, is the complete lack of submission to the authority of people in their lives. Moses, who do you think you are making your opinions known? Who do you think you are leading us in a certain way? We have the right to lead ourselves. And so part of God's response to that in discipline of the people was, I'm going to send fiery serpents uh, among you. And so we see all of this Exodus language reminding us that, man, this is the same heart that was in the middle of the Israelites when they rebelled against God and his authority. So what would they answer? What would they say to the Philistines? Well, God's point to the Philistines was this. In the midst of the attack of yet another worldly army, Babylon, God's people can remain safe in God, but the worldly kingdom will not. Now, in America, we think about this very differently because we are bordered by oceans. We're the superpower of military. And when you hear me say that the people of God would be safe, that they would find refuge, you immediately think, yeah, they wouldn't get touched. They wouldn't have to go through anything. But is that the case? Is that the truth? Would the people of God in Judah be comfortable in the midst of Babylon coming through and raping, pillaging, and burning? No, the reality was, was they were hit just as hard and pulled into exile just like all the nation states around them. So what was God talking about when he said the people of God will find refuge in his kingdom? Wait a minute. Being in the middle of raping, pillaging, and burning and destruction doesn't sound like my idea of the gospel, God. I'm a prosperity guy. I'm not really, but I'm, I'm being facetious. The gospel is supposed to be my you know, salvation here and now where I don't get touched and I'm comfortable all the time. That is not the kingdom of God. Okay? The kingdom of God is that we have a different mindset because we belong in a different way to a different kingdom. We don't fear death anymore. We don't fear destruction. We don't fear losing our job because we proclaim Christ at work. We don't fear losing our business because God will provide. We don't fear that the, the things the people of the kingdom of the world do because we follow a different king and we are part of a different citizenship. I love this uh, quote. I was reading, uh, any of you ever heard of Athanasius? Got to read the guy, all right? He's one of the earliest church fathers. He's one of the guys that laid down what the canon of Scripture was. 
And St. Athanasius wrote this book called On the Incarnation. And he says this amazing uh, statement. I want you to just listen for a second. Speaking of this very thing that we aren't scared by the same things. He says, For when one sees human beings who are weak by nature, leaping towards death, neither shrinking from its corruption nor fearing the descent into hell, but with an eager spirit challenging it and not flinching from even torture, but rather for the sake of Christ. Okay, he was in the middle of one of the biggest persecutions of Christians. But rather for the sake of Christ, preferring instead of this present life, zeal for death on behalf of Christ. When one watches men and women and young children rushing and leaping towards death on account of their devotion to Christ, Who is so silly, so incredulous, or who is so maimed in the mind as to not understand and reason that it is Christ to who those human beings are bearing witness? For when one sees a snake trampled down, especially if he knows its former ferocity, no longer doubts that it is dead and completely weakened. For who seeing a lion being played with by children does not know that it is either dead or has lost all its power? Just as it is possible for the eye to see that these things are true, so when death is played with and despised by those believing in Christ, let no one any longer doubt nor be unbelieving that death has been destroyed by Christ and its corruption dissolved and brought to an end. I wish we talked like that. Whew. Gives me goosebumps. What is he saying? He's saying when you see people who are no longer fearful of anything because the worst thing is death, you know that they operate in a different kingdom. They have a different mindset. They have a different ruler, one who they can trust and know that even if death creeps into their life, they will be victorious. This is the mark of a Christian. And this is still so true for us today. In the midst of a chaotic world, it is in the kingdom of God that we find refuge. Not comfort in the way we as Americans term it, but we are given the comforter to remind us that even when the hardest of life hits us, we can look to the mountains from whence comes our salvation and realize that nothing can touch us. That we are part of the victorious kingdom. When we feel down in the world, when depression or anxiety or stress overtakes us, we can turn to the truth of God's word to realize That even if our 70 or 80 years on this earth is surrounded by shadow, when all seems to defeat us, we can cry out into the darkness, Rejoice, we conquer. You have no power over me. There is nothing in this world that cannot and has not been overcome by the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is what they were trying to get across to those who were in the midst of their own fear, saying, We need refuge. Find refuge in the kingdom. We move on from here to the next proclamation. And this is the proclamation to Moab. Proclamation to Moab. In the kingdom of God, you will find shelter. Now you think, Hans, refuge, shelter, the same thing. Well, yes, very much so. But he uses the word shelter here very specifically. So let's take a look at this long section that is speaking to Moab. And I'm going to do my best to Uh, pronounce some words that are easier in the Hebrew, but I'm going to say them in the English because it's a little bit weird uh, as we go through. So chapter 15, verse 1. 
An oracle concerning Moab. Because of Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab, and that means in the Hebrew, the fortress of Moab, is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Diban, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Medaba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliah cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab, her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath, Shalishia. For at the ascent of Luhith they go up to weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglaim. Her wailing reaches to Bir Elim. For the waters of Deban are full of blood. For I will bring upon Deban even more a lion for those of Moab who escape, for the remnant of the land. We read this section, another heavy section. Poetry meant to evoke emotion, and so I ask you, are your emotions evoked? Once you get past the weird-sounding names, you realize this is people crying out because there is no hope. When somebody comes to you at church and they're like, hey, how's life? And you're like, I have been reduced to weeping. I am melting from sadness. That's when you go, okay, I'm going to need more than the 30 seconds I was planning on. This is bad. Sadness, fear, anxiety, these are all very much intended. And God even joins their cry in a sense. My heart cries out for Moab. This is the heart of God towards his followers. But it's also the heart of God towards his the non-followers, the disbelievers, the unbelievers, because he's crying out, why not repent and follow me and be in my authority? It's a pain for God to see brokenness, the hurt and the rebellion. And so in 16.1, we see again a delegation sent to Judah, just like with Philistia, along with a tribute lamb to pay off the rulers of Judah in order to gain their good confidence and to appease the ruler and buy their favor. And so they go and they ask for counsel and judgment and a decision of whether or not they will give them shelter and give them refuge. They say this, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Now, this next section is difficult. And this feels really awkward to say because I am not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just learning it. But it's interesting. If you have an NASB or an NIV, the way it's structured right now, your Bibles are going to talk this next section as if it is the delegation of Moab. And I would agree with that. I think the delegation of Moab is coming and they're about to say the next verse. In the ESV, and I believe in the New King James and the King James, it shows it and speaks as if God is giving a command. And that is a screw up of the grammar. It's a very, very basic thing. And so what's happening here in verse 3 is the, the, the people from Moab are coming like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, up to the daughter of Zion and crying out for help. And I love how the NASB says this next verse. It says, give us advice, make a decision. The idea he's saying here is we need your help and we need you to do it quickly. 
They say, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. In verse 4, the idea of let the outcasts, if this were God making a command, he would not use this type of grammar. He would say, do it, not let it be. And so they're crying out to Judah, help us. And through Isaiah, God speaks this to the people of Moab. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in Hesed, in steadfast love that is immovable. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. They're crying out for help. And what seems like a cop-out is given to them. But the author here is being very clear. Isaiah is being very clear. He's saying, this is not a cop-out. This is where refuge and shelter is found, even in the midst of destruction. There will come a point, Isaiah is saying, when the oppressor, all of the worldly kingdoms that oppress, all of the masters and lords, all of the husbands, all of the fathers who oppress those under their care, they will be brought to destruction. And the power behind them, the enemy of darkness, the adversary, Hasatan in the Hebrew, he will be brought low. And when that happens, a throne will be established in Hesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness, speaking to God's covenant faithfulness to those who respond to his covenant call. And he says it will be one who is like a king of David, in the tent of David, the lineage of the king, one who judges and seeks justice and swift to do righteousness. Those of you who've been following with us in Isaiah should ring out in your ears, what is the rule of our king? Righteousness and justice. Righteousness justice. This is speaking of Jesus to come. And on the cross, he did just this. He gave the oppressor destruction on his own. He brought victory over Satan. And yet there are still skirmishes. There are still battles that happen on this earth because he is grasping for one last piece of control. I think immediately of how they announced Jesus coming into Jerusalem. John 12, 15, when he's riding in on his donkey, listen to what they say in line with this. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Rejoice, we conquer. They thought that Jesus was the one for whom they had been waiting, that he would defeat the enemies of the world through warfare that is similarly used by the kingdoms of the world. And he's the one that would bring them immediate comfort from their enemies. But that is not who he was spoken as. He was spoken as something different. Turn with me to Psalm 91. And let's take a look at what another part of Scripture speaks to in this, uh, this same way. That our king is different. His rule is different. His kingdom is different. It is not of this world. It does not happen in the same ways. Take a look at Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will not only look, uh, or you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. This is God speaking to you and to I, uh, to me, that are followers of him. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, we read this in our very literal Western mindset, and we say, this is prosperity gospel. This is God saying, if you follow him, if you're good enough, if you serve him in enough holiness, you will never have trouble or trial. And that is just inherently false. We are a colony surrounded by a kingdom that is a complete enemy of the king that we serve. This is speaking to the fact that God will hold us strong in the midst of battle. And we will be able to cry, rejoice, we conquer. And at the end of our life, or maybe before at the imminent coming of Christ, when the kingdom is established, we will be resurrected and will reign with him and rule with him and have true victory over death and sin and all that it encompasses. Jesus would be king, but in a way that these people would not understand, in a way that we can truly proclaim today, even with the chaos of our own lives and the chaos around us, we can proclaim, say it with me, rejoice, we conquer. Well, back to Moab, though. Let's go back to Isaiah. God offers to them this salvation, citizenship in his kingdom. If only they would simply humble themselves before the authority of the king in his steadfast love, faithfulness, justice, and righteousness, it would all be theirs. And they would be able to look their enemy in the eye and know that even death cannot defeat them. But instead, look at their response. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 16, we see pride. We see rebellion against the authority of God asking them to submit to his reign. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. Guys, arrogance, pride, and insolence is of the kingdom of darkness, not of the kingdom of the king. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches which reached to Jazir and strayed to the desert, its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. What he's saying is you were once fruitful. You had lots of vines. You could even make raisin cakes. You had so many leftover grapes, but you have been struck down, and therefore you don't have any more fruit. Verse 9, Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the wine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah. For over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no song are sung. 
No songs are sung. No cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab and my inmost self for Kir Hereseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high places, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. For them it would have been no concern to buy their way into the kingdom, to give more tribute offerings, to do things based on their own pride and their own strength, but to humble themselves, to submit to the authority of the king was out of the question. And so when they would go up to their high places and cry out to the deities, they would cry out to the God figures and they would say, help us, heaven would be silent and they would not prevail. Why? Because we cannot be followers of Jesus and balk at the authority of Jesus. We cannot be followers of the king and say, you will not reign over me. We must be under his authority. This is not a question of legalism. This is a question of citizenship within a kingdom. By his grace, he has granted us entrance into his kingdom. How long does a person last when they become a felon based on the rule of that kingdom? Very, very little time will pass before they will be asked to leave. In their pride, they thought that they could turn God towards them, but only in his grace will he allow us to step into his kingdom and abide by his rule. We have to realize that it is in the kingdom that we find shelter. Lastly, we move into the third oracle, and the last oracle I'll take you through, the proclamation to Damascus. And Damascus was the capital city of Syria, and this is what he says, kingdoms will come and go, only the kingdom of God will remain. Kingdoms will come and go, only the kingdom of God will remain. This section, quite honestly, is one of the most confusing in Isaiah because we as Americans think linearly and chronologically. So we just got done talking to Philistia and Moab who were fighting against Babylon. And now we go over to Syria. So a lot of people, very well-meaning, have taken this section and tried to figure out how it speaks to future prophecy that will happen when a nuke hits Damascus, right? Um, I've heard that taught a ton. That's not what this is talking about. Because Isaiah is a mixture of various poetry, poetry throughout Isaiah's life, kind of mixed up and put together, and the context and the content, as we talked about in one of my first teachings in Isaiah, actually uh, speaks to us a greater message almost than even just the specific words. The structure of Isaiah is a way of communicating to us. We have to realize that what's actually being spoken of here happened before the oracle to Moab and the oracle to Philistia. And what he's saying here in the language he's using is very much along the lines of what he was saying chapters earlier, earlier when he's talking about Assyria coming into Syria and Israel. And he's going to be talking about two groups. He's going to be talking about Syria, and then he's also going to be talking about um, the glory of Jacob, which is another phrase for Israel. And so we're actually taking a step back chronologically here, but it makes tons of sense within this section because the flow of thought of Isaiah is the kingdoms of the earth will crumble, 13 through 23, those chapters, and the kingdom of God will remain. And you'll see that in chapters 24 and 25 when we get there. 
But let's take this and go ahead and go through it to see how he's wrapping this in. Verse 1 of chapter 17, an oracle or proclamation concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Remember, he's using poetic language here. He's not saying in a scientific way you'll be able to go measure that the city does not exist anymore. He's saying that it will be destroyed, which it was by Assyria when they came through. Not totally, because it is the oldest city in the world, but it was destroyed. It will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob, this is speaking of Israel, will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. This is speaking of when Assyria came through and knocked them out and left only a remnant of the people. In biblical language, we talk about how the ten kingdoms of Israel were actually taken into oblivion. We don't know what happened to them. They disappeared as they were taken into exile by Assyria. Now we move forward and he says, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be less desolation." Now, the key here, we read this and we hear it all as future, and so we want to throw it out in the future. But this was written in a futuristic way by Isaiah saying this will happen, and it happened with Assyria. Why did it happen with Assyria? This is the same message from the first few chapters of the book. Verse 10, the core of this section. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. You've forgotten the God of your salvation, he says. You've not remembered the rock of your refuge. This is looking back at the famous stories in Exodus and Numbers from which the saving waters of God flowed to the people of Israel from the rock. Paul would talk about it later, saying that rock was Jesus Christ. He's saying our fortress and our rock is the Lord. And the Lord is a rock because of his faithful action to care for his people. He's a fortress for those that trust in him. And this is who God's people were, and they had forgotten this. It is core to the people of God that we turn to God for refuge in the middle of trouble. Not because we think he will make things instantly better, but because he is the one who will eventually conquer all that brings us darkness. And these were the people that had been led by David, who was the one in his victory proclamation after his defeat of the Philistines cried this. It was core to who they were. For who is God but the Lord, David said, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. And yet, They had forgotten who they were. They had turned to leaders that in no way represented the heart of God. And they had followed humans as opposed to the God that was their rock. Rather than trusting in God to be their ultimate refuge eternally, they had tried to align 
in human means with other kingdoms to bring them comfort and security in the here and now. They had forgotten that kingdoms will come and go and only the kingdom of God will remain. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Now, verse 12 of chapter 17 and verse 1 of chapter 18 both begin with oi. Everybody say oi. Oi. Oi vey, right? Okay, it says ah in the English here. Oi, it is a proclamation. Woe is me. And these finish up the section and the message, uh, what I've been covering today, which is kingdoms like Syria, like Israel, like Moab, like Philistia, they're just like the other kingdoms of the world. Many of the kingdoms today, North Korea, right? Blustering, foolish, roaring, crashing, causing a ruckus, but in the end, disappearing as if nothing. Those who are blustery and foolish in their language will be brought to nothing. And chapter 18 continues this thought as if references, um, as it references another supposedly strong empire. In our mindset, we have no idea what this is talking about. People tall and smooth. Well, Hans is tall, but he's not smooth. I don't know. Is this like Scandinavia? What is happening here, right? Okay. What this is talking about is this. There was a strong empire uh, known as the Empire of Ethiopia, right? We have some Ethiopian citizens in our, uh, in our family here, and so it's fun to talk about this. They had a king uh, whose name was, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Pionki, who took Egypt and a number of areas around uh, Africa, and he was so strong and he wanted to prove himself strong in the world that he sent envoys throughout the world, delegations throughout the world, to tell everyone that they could trust him to be the better governor, the one who could protect them. He sent envoys to the Middle East, specifically Judah, promising to help them as they fought against Assyria. He sent envoys throughout the world proclaiming that in him and in his kingdom, the world could take refuge and shelter. And this is yet one more failed king in a failed kingdom that thinks that they are the authority of the world. Question and answer time. How powerful is Moab in 2017? How powerful is Philistia in 2017? How powerful is Assyria in 2017? How powerful is Babylon in 2017? Ethiopia is still around. They are the strongest. But how powerful is Ethiopia in the world of things? No. If God should tarry, some pastor will stand up in the year 2517 and say, how powerful was the United States of America? Who? You know, those guys. (laughs) See, again, in our patriotism, we forget that we are just another kingdom. But the kingdom of the true king, his kingdom will not fail. And so Isaiah responds with these last four verses. He says on behalf of God, 
All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, God, he, cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of the prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. In other words, it doesn't matter how fruitful you are, how powerful you are, how materially wealthy you are, you're going to be cut off because there will be one kingdom. Verse 7, at that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts. Yahweh is his name, and he is the general of the armies of heaven. From a people tall and smooth, in other words, from every kingdom that has ever existed, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. He makes a very pointed statement, Isaiah does, to God's people and all the nations of the world, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but only the Lord's kingdom will remain. And all people, even those that are the greatest of the great, the best warriors, will one day bring tribute to Jesus Christ. And so, those of us that are part of his kingdom, we proclaim together as his kingdom citizens today, say it with me, rejoice, we conquer. Last week I stated that the proclamation of the victory of Jesus' kingdom has been made and Jesus' king, his kingdom is victorious. And I asked you how you would respond to that proclamation. This week I am assuming that because you are sitting here today, you have responded by accepting his call as citizens walking as his people under his authority and his rule. And so so today I want to give you two pieces of practical application based on the ideas of our text. One, a promise to be claimed, and one, a command to obey. The first, you can write this down, is from Romans 8, 31 through 39. 8, 31 through 39. Why don't you turn there with me? Romans 8, 31 through 39. And hopefully as we've gone through today, you will be able able to see a little bit more of the context of this statement that Paul is making. He's not just talking about an individual conquering. He's talking about the kingdom of God. In the anointed king, we are victorious. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? God, If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. In other words, he's guaranteeing you that these things will come in your life. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in other words, in the midst of all these things, distresses, tribulations, persecutions, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in the anointed one, the anointed king, Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, we are more than conquerors because it is the king who loved us and gave his life for us. Paul wasn't just talking about the reformed idea and notion of justification here. He was also talking about the eventual glorification that will come where we rule and reign with the anointed king in his kingdom. In the new Jerusalem. In those days where you cannot stand one more moment of the darkness. Let this be your refuge from the storm of the life around you. That God has promised you and he has assured you that you can proclaim, say it with me, rejoice, we conquer. Now from this, we also have a command of Christ to obey. Throughout the various texts we covered today, you notice that there were delegations sent on behalf of their kingdoms. In two of the cases, it was sent in order to beg for help. In one of the cases, it was sent to give help, to say how mighty and strong they were. There is a theme of people sent on behalf of their kingdoms. At the end, we find that all of these kingdoms will crumble and only God's kingdom will remain. But see, with Jesus, God's kingdom that was inaugurated at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that kingdom will stand eternally, never to be brought down. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and it will be fully established at the second coming of Jesus. And so this is why Jesus gathered his disciples together before he ascended, formed them into a delegation of sorts to be sent throughout the world on his behalf, And he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because I have become king, in other words, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What Isaiah gives us is this same command that we must obey as the followers of Jesus. All authority has been given to the king, and so we are commanded to be the delegation that goes throughout our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our very homes, and throughout the world proclaiming, say it with me, rejoice, we conquer. This week, I want you to look deeply at your life, Mission Fellowship. I want each and every one of you to look deeply at your life, your actions, your words, your beliefs, how you use your time, your talents, and your treasures. And I call on you to obey the command, not of Hans, but of the king, to do what is necessary to bring your life into submission to your king so that you can proclaim with your life to the world around you, rejoice, we conquer. If you are stuck in sin, you cannot proclaim it. If you are rebellious against the authorities of your life, you cannot proclaim it. If you are rebellious against the commands of the king to walk in love of God and love of one another, you cannot proclaim this. He has risen. He has given us victory. And he has given us a spirit that convicts us of this word, his command. So I beg of you, bring your life into submission to the king. This is not perfection. This is acknowledging that you have known rebelliousness in your life and it's time to get rid of it. And then you can rightly proclaim, rejoice, we conquer. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, 
The Bible says that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we sing out, as we worship and tithe, giving of our offering and taking of communion, I pray that we would be a people today that realize that Christ has already given us the victory. He's given us the spirit to which we must surrender. He's given us his word to which we must bow and surrender. He's given us his fellowship to hold us accountable to the commands. And today is the day that we must say, you are our king, we submit to you. And because you have been victorious, we can cry out, say it with me, rejoice, we conquer 